Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm Kelly Blahos, and I'm joined by Daniel Larison. And we are very excited today to talk to Emma Ashford of the Atlantic Council's new American Engagement Initiative. But first, let's talk a bit. One of the things we want to do with Crashing the War Party is to introduce our listeners to our other journalists, thinkers, scholars, activists who have spent their careers attempting to challenge the status quo to get beneath the company line and inform the American people of what the government is doing in their name. In many ways, this is a very thankless job. You win no medals and certainly no friends in the establishment for questioning the blob. Very few of these iconoclastic, heterodox individuals get rich wandering off the reservation, but they are rich in integrity. Unfortunately, two of the best have left us this week. Pierre Spray, a defense analyst in Washington most associated with the Project on Government Oversight, has died at the age of 84. And Mark Perry, a journalist and author who is also a colleague at the Quincy Institute, died on Sunday at the age of 71. This is a great blow to the reform community all the way around. And I thought we could talk a little bit about both men in the first segment. So let's start with Mark. I I know, Dan, that you've identified a few of the articles that he has written, because I know he's written for both the American Conservative recently and more recently, Responsible Statecraft, but just great journalism on the military and foreign policy. So um, let's talk a bit about what what he's written and uh, what he's brought to the table in terms of uh, defense reform. Definitely. Thanks, Kelly. And uh, I was sorry to hear... Uh, that uh, Mark Perry had passed away. I did not have the privilege of knowing him personally as you did. Uh, I know he was also a, a friend of yours. Um, I, I knew him through his work. I knew him through interactions on Twitter, uh, but I, I didn't have the, the good fortune of getting to know him uh, as a person. And of course, I've heard many great things from all of his colleagues and friends uh, over the last uh, few days. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, the, the pieces that I uh, re- called to mind uh, when I was preparing for this uh, stretch uh, over many years. Uh, the, the first one was actually a really fascinating piece that he wrote all the way back in 2012 when he uh, dug up evidence that uh, Mossad had posed as CIA agents to recruit uh, Jundullah terrorists in eastern Iran to carry out terrorist attacks against Iranian interests uh, as part of Jundullah's campaign uh, there against the government. Uh, and it was it was really interesting to me because I remember reading, uh, even many years before that, that the U.S. had been backing Jundullah uh, under the Bush administration, and it was it always seemed a little strange that that was the case. Uh, and what, what Perry did was to get to the bottom of what had really happened, uh, which is that Mossad had used the CIA as cover, or had used, had pretended to be in, uh, CIA agents uh, in order to uh, promote their own agenda, uh, and and basically, without caring what the U.S. thought about it, uh, and and so he he shined a light on this uh, very uh, obscure story, uh, but one that was very important to understanding the dynamics of uh, the politics in the Middle East uh, and our place in it. And so I thought that was it was a really exceptional piece that he did for foreign policy all those years ago. Uh, another one uh, that I thought was really impressive and, and very important uh, was his. A report for the American Conservative on uh, the uh, lifting of restrictions uh, by the Trump administration on the deployment of landmines, and uh, he delved into that issue and, and talked to people in the military to to, to uh, show 
but the military doesn't really care about using landmines. They have they don't see any real value in them. Uh, they're not a useful weapon. Uh, they're they're basically a menace to our own troops when they are deployed. The last time they were actually deployed in wartime by the U.S. was during the Gulf War, uh, when we had to maneuver around them because uh, they were such a menace. And so uh, uh, he was calling attention to Trump's uh, very bad decision uh, lifting these restrictions, and then uh, calling attention to the real reason behind that decision, which was the interests of weapons manufacturers. And so he was, uh, again, shining a light on something that a lot of people would not have noticed necessarily or would not have been paying attention to, uh, and uh, addressing something that was very important in terms of protecting civilian lives, and also uh, bringing the U.S. closer into line with the international consensus on landmines, uh, where most governments uh, have banned them and prohibited their use. And so uh, th those were a couple uh, really impressive stories. Uh, in the same vein uh, as the land landmine story was the story that he did on the uh, striker vehicle uh, that the army keeps using, even though it is considered uh, to be a death trap for troops. Uh, and so he, again, he was digging down into uh, what was really driving uh, the use of these vehicles. And again, it comes back to uh, the interests of weapons manufacturers. And so uh, th those were uh, several of the, the uh, pieces that uh, really stayed with me and that I thought uh, exemplified the kind of uh, important truth-telling uh, that he did as a journalist. Yeah, and I think you really um, pinpoint uh, a real um, truth about Mark is, is that he has had a really um, colorful, vast uh, career in journalism that spanned uh, several different issues that were very important to him, that he was very passionate about. And one of them was uh, the international campaign to ban landmines for which he worked for. And also all of his work in Beirut, uh, he was working uh, for uh, the conflicts, uh, conflict re uh, resolution a group uh, there. He was a co-director. I'll find the name of it in a second. Um, but, you know, so he had a, um, a an entrenched uh, passion about resolving uh, some of the international uh, issues, uh, whether they be with uh, so-called uh, Islamic terrorism emanating out of the Arab world. Uh, he was a fierce critic of U.S.-Israel policy, which often put made him a target uh, by hawks and neoconservatives who uh, would uh, highlight this in, in, in various degrees. Um, then he shifted over to the military later on, where he had a ton of fantastic sources within the Pentagon, and he was able to exploit that, uh, writing about pieces about the wars, about the forever wars, and from a real restraint perspective, which I find was quite rare in Washington. A lot of people, a lot of journalists have tons of resources and sources within the military industrial complex, but they're usually the guys and the gals who are on the hawkish uh, right of the situation and of the issue rather. And uh, Mark was actually using these sources to cultivate um, knowledge and information about ending our wars and about redirecting our foreign policy towards restraint and criticizing uh, the status quo. And I think he found a lot of kinship within 
the Pentagon, within the military with retired officers who had seen firsthand how our policies were failing and they needed an outlet and they found an outlet in Mark Perry and he made a lot of good friends that way. So, I mean, whether it be on Arab uh, issues, uh, whether it be on uh, banning landmines or uh, finding ways to, to reform the defense industry and our policies, Mark was sort of like on the forefront of all of those throughout his career. And he was a prolific author and he found uh, he had this love of history, which he used uh, to explore different themes um, and look at things from different angles. He most recently published uh, a book called Pentagon's Wars, and it talked about how um, how the Pentagon actually and its brass had pitted itself or at least bullied and um, manipulated or attempted to uh, sub- manipulate subsequent presidencies to get their way in uh, their wars uh, since the Vietnam. And um, so, I mean, he just had a lot of wisdom to impart. And uh, it's, 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 it's one of those cases of somebody who's been taken away too soon. And he was really one of the good guys. Absolutely. But one of the insights that he had, uh, I remember him giving to us at one of the early uh, restraint conferences that uh, TAC put on, uh, this would have been, uh, I think, five years ago now that he spoke at uh, one of those conferences. And he made the point uh, that uh, the reason why there's such a, a commitment among uh, the, the, the top generals to keeping these wars going is that for this generation of officers, uh, they, they have been engaged in expeditionary warfare most of their careers. And this is, it's not, it's not only what they know, but it's, it's what they, uh, they're deeply invested in personally. And so they, they don't want uh, to bring these wars to an end because this is what they consider to be uh, sort of their, their bread and butter. And, and we've certainly seen that with a lot of the, the backlash against uh, withdrawals, uh, both from Iraq and now Afghanistan. Uh, I, I think not a day goes by now that H.R. McMaster doesn't uh, send out some disparaging tweet about uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, without acknowledging, of course, uh, the failure of uh, his efforts and the efforts of other commanders uh, in those wars. And so there's a, a kind of a weird lack of accountability there uh, that's that's been very uh, pernicious. And anyway, Mark uh, picked up on that and pointed that out, I think, many years before uh, a lot of other people were noticing the same thing. And so he was just a very perceptive and very uh, thoughtful man. And uh, yeah, we have definitely lost a great ally and and friend uh, in working towards peace. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, in terms of his perception, you know, he he liked the military. He actually got along with military guys. Uh, He understood the motivation. He understood the institution Uh, He had a healthy respect for it. Um, But I think that made him a much better analyst and a a much better journalist in terms of when he was going to go after something like the the striker vehicle, like you mentioned, or the army trying to get a piece of the China action 
or individuals, generals. Um, you know, he had a great piece about Lloyd Austin when he became Secretary of Defense. He was able to um, convey uh, the story and pose questions and get underneath, you know, the headlines from the from a very um, learned and informed point of view about how the military works. And we need more journalists like that on our side. You know, those are the best journalists because anybody can write an op-ed saying that war sucks and that the system sucks and that the blob is overwhelming and we, we have to stop war. But we need more people who have been toiling away on the, the inside or at least have a healthy understanding of the institution that they are challenging. And, you know, Mark had that. He was just a smart, such a smart guy and tons of passion. And, you know, he um, he helped others, too. He helped me, you know, at in my work as an editor and a writer. He was very encouraging and, you know, I think it says a lot that he was able to come over to the American conservative as somebody who has never been considered a conservative. And when you read his stuff about foreign policy and national security, you don't know either way where he comes down ideologically, politically. He wasn't partisan. Um, and I think that uh, that that, as somebody had pointed out, I think it was Kurt Mills in a piece that he did about Mark this week, that that's that was a tradition of the American conservative all along. I mean, it was it drew people who had solidarity with one another on the issue of um, ending the war's realism and restraint. And he really typified that. Absolutely. And uh, well, and we'll we'll miss uh, his wisdom and, and his insights uh, in all of that. And uh, no, I, I think you, you summed it up very well, Kelly. Well, in, in another, you know, uh, sad case, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Pierre Spray before before we get to Emma. Um, he was born in Nice, France, and had come to this country fleeing the Nazis. He was a gifted child. He went to Yale and Cornell, and he earned degrees in aeronautical engineering. And all of his life, he had been fascinated with the nuts and bolts of, of aircraft. And uh, went to work in the private sector uh, before being hired to serve as an analyst with Robert McNamara, the defense uh, the defense secretary during uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, he was one of the so-called whiz kids during that period. Um, but he became very disenchanted with the way the planes were being designed in the Air Force and what he felt was undue involvement uh, of defense contractors in the design um, process. And he joined this small clique of like-minded analysts who eventually called themselves the fighter mafia. And for decades, they helped to design and promote what they felt were planes that were built for close air support and more effective than the loaded down, overly designed planes favored by the Air Force at that time. And to this day, um, he became a fierce critic of the F-35 all the way into his death uh, this week. Um, and, um, you know, he became a, a, this, this movement that's now spanned generations um, of people who are fighting from inside. They were using their intellect and their know-how uh, and, and their sort of insider um, knowledge of the institution to fight from within. And again, another... Another example of somebody that we've lost, I don't know if he is replaceable, uh, his comrades in this original 
fighter mafia are, are, are aging out, unfortunately. And I, I guess it's up to, to folks our age and, and, and younger than uh, to keep that spirit alive. Absolutely. And, and then we do need to have people like that uh, who are uh, trying to, to reform things from the inside, who are trying to, to uh, remake the system uh, and, and move it away from uh, the, the militarism and, and the destructive policies that we've seen over the last many decades. Uh, and so we're, uh, we're very grateful for the work that uh, these two men have done and uh, we have to keep that work going. today is Emma Ashford. She is a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. She has expertise in the politics of Russia, Europe, and the Middle East. Uh, previously, she was a research fellow in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and co-hosted the Power Problems podcast. Uh, she writes a bi-weekly column that's debatable for foreign policy and is a regular contributor to Inkstick. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, thanks for being here, and uh, yeah, I'm sorry we never got a chance to do a crossover podcast with you when you were still over there, uh, but uh, we're, we're very happy to have you here now. Um, so uh, turning uh, first to the, the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, we're, we're seeing it, uh, the, the negotiations in Vienna are, are sort of faltering. Uh, they've, they've paused while Raisi uh, gets his ducks in a row back in Iran. Uh, what do you make of the current state of the talks to salvage the nuclear deal? And do you think the Biden administration can still rejoin the JCPOA or has that window closed? You know, it's incredibly depressing, frankly, watching what's happening in Vienna. Um, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say the window has closed for, for re-entering the JCPOA, but things do seem to be in a much worse place than they were even a, even a few months ago. Um, I mean, so, you know, I have seen experts, people following this far, far more closely than me, I've seen experts saying basically everything from um, Raisi, the, the new Iranian president, um, you know, he is going to come back into the JCPOA, um, you know, and because he's pretty hard line and because he, as you say, has all his ducks in a row at home, he's going to be able to, to do this. And, and actually, this might be better. Um, than sort of more Rouhani. Um, but then I've also seen experts, again, sort of people that I trust and respect, saying, um, you know, basically the opposite, that the Biden team has sort of pushed a little too hard on the notion that there needs to be follow-on agreements um, and that Raisi is sort of too beholden to elements inside Iran, particularly the IRGC, that makes all of that just very difficult and that the situation is just no longer as... Um, the potential is just no longer there for this deal to go forward. So I, I myself tend towards that latter position. I, I think the window is closing. I don't think it's necessarily shut. Um, but right now, it's hard for me to see what the contours of a deal to get both the US and Iran back into to the deal looks like. Sure. Uh, well, and one of the signs of that uh, sort of the hardening posture in Iran is the, the choice uh, for the new foreign minister, Amr Abdullahian. Uh, who uh, had been in the foreign ministry under Rouhani, but then was removed, uh, essentially as a in an attempt to to make a gesture towards the U.S. Uh, because he he himself is a very hardline figure, uh, and now he's going to be foreign minister, and so that that suggests that uh, Iran's going to be much more inflexible 
uh, in its negotiating uh, position, would you say? Yeah, I will say you're much better at pronouncing Iranian names than me. I can I can never do that right. Um, but you know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the 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 entire Raisi administration is basically shaping up to be much more hostile towards the West, just intrinsically hostile towards talking to the West, working with the West, striking deals. Now, again, I don't think that that precludes coming to deals on certain things. Um, you know, I think it's really important to remember that the Supreme Leader has not changed um, and that he, even as he's picked Raisi as his sort of heir apparent, he authorized the negotiations that led to the JCPOA in the first place. Um, and so, you know, even if there's been some shifting of opinion there, I think that there's a willingness, even on the part of what we would consider fairly hardline elements in Iran, to negotiate on, on some of these issues. But it's going to be harder. You know, if, if there's that initial hesitation, that unwillingness to talk to the West, um, you know, that unwillingness to try and find a compromise, that always makes these things harder. Um, and, and I think, you know, particularly if we don't manage to get back into the JCPOA, um, you know, then sort of all bets are off and, and it becomes much harder to do anything else when it comes to talking to Iran. Absolutely. Um, and shifting gears a little bit uh, to, to foreign policy debate here in the US, uh, we saw recently this uh, article that came out from Daniel Dudney and John Eikenberry in the article Survival, and then sorry, in the journal Survival, excuse me, uh, where they wrote a, a very polemical article against foreign policy restraint uh, and the Quincy Coalition, as they call it. Uh, what did you make of their article and what does it say about the state of foreign policy debate in Washington? Well, with, uh, with no offense to Kelly and my many friends over at the Quincy Institute, um, I, I continue to think it's funny that a lot of these articles are framed very directly at the Quincy Institute, um, when as, as a matter of fact, sort of this restraint coalition, you know, what, what Dudney and I can very call the, the Quincy coalition, but this, this restraint camp is much, much, much broader. And, and, you know, I think it includes people who are grand strategists, who are realists or restrainers. It includes um, sort of anti-war uh, activists on the right and left. Um, there's a lot of fellow travelers, I think, that maybe wouldn't define themselves as, as restrainers or as part of this Quincy coalition, but who are nonetheless part of what I consider to be a movement towards a more restrained US foreign policy, at least to some extent. And so where, where I think the, the Dunia and Eikenberry piece really goes wrong is in trying to pin this down as, you know, the, the restraint camp, the Quincy camp, it's one thing, it's housed in one building, they all believe one thing. Um, and I think that really just elides that there's this massive diversity of opinion even within this camp. Um, you know, so from, from my point of view, I think that's what's the most interesting question about restraint and what it does next, where it goes next, um, you know, is the fact that there still is a diversity of opinion with, within that camp. Thank you, Emma, and uh, welcome to the show. We are so happy to talk with you again. Um, in that vein of pushback from the internationalists, I know you and your Atlantic Council colleague, Matt Burroughs, had been the subject of similar backlash back in March when you penned a brief calling for a new approach to U.S. policy uh, with Russia, one that separated the human rights issue from the diplomatic mission, which should and would focus on shared interests between the two countries in order to start building bridges uh, away from the failed Cold War approach. Uh, you took a lot of flack for that uh, from the establishment for what they said was neglecting the human issue. 
To this day, there's a tension between our efforts to reimagine our relationship with Russia and a pressure uh, from these internationalists to put uh, human rights, Putin's human rights record first. Can we talk a little bit about that tension and how the Biden administration is dealing with it right now? Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the issue that, that happened back in March was basically my colleague Matt Burroughs and I wrote this paper in which we argued, as you say, that the sort of that we should put human rights in the back seat when it comes to Russia. Not that we should necessarily get rid of thinking about human rights altogether, not that not, not that it's unimportant, but that promoting democracy, promoting human rights to the exclusion of other interests has been quite damaging in the US-Russian relationship. Um, and, and so what I find just so interesting about that incident in retrospect, you know, looking back at it almost six months on, is the approach we advocated in that paper that drew so much fire is basically the approach that the Biden administration is taking towards Moscow, um, which is that they have, um, you know, that they have put on a few more sanctions, they've they've spoken out against various Russian abuses, um, but they haven't made that the, the lodestar, the, the center point of their strategy. Instead, they've prioritized the strategic dialogue. Um, so we had that Biden-Putin summit back in, I think it was June, um, and that's been followed with a series of um, sort of mid-level working talks on issues like nuclear weapons, strategic stability, cyber. Um, and those are some of the issues where we need to actually make progress. And so I, I think it's really interesting to note that this is the way the Biden team has actually chosen to approach the issue. And, and I, I believe that that's partly because the other approach, that is to say the approach that continued to just sort of hammer on Russia as, you know, we can't talk to them until they improve their behavior, you know, that very idealistic approach to the world um, just wasn't yielding results. And so the Biden team has retreated to this somewhat more realist approach towards Russia, which says that Russia is pretty big. You've got to deal with it on some level. Um, you know, so we should try and do that in, in sort of the best way for U.S. interests. And I just find it really fascinating that that is where the Biden team has has actually landed after all of this. Thanks, Emma. But I have a quick question. I mean, as, uh, alongside of everything that you've just spoken about, we do see an effort by the Biden administration uh, to put new sanctions on Russia to highlight Russia's transgressions or supposed transgressions and cybersecurity and um, even the human rights issue um, and clearly are not lifting any of the existing sanctions. Uh, there, there seems to be two things going on here. Uh, do you think that, you know, that uh, commitment to the sanctions uh, publicly and policy-wise is is uh, counterproductive to the new strategy that you're speaking about right now? You know, I, I think they've made some steps in that direction. Um, and I also, it's, it's not clear to me that the administration itself is internally united on this question, um, because we have seen some pushback, some statements from people, particularly at the State Department, on um, on various human rights issues, but also on the question of sort of Nord Stream 2, um, where we've seen the White House take a more, I, I hesitate to even use the word conciliatory approach, but just a more like fact-based, realistic approach to these, to these issues. Um, and, you know, it, again, it's not it's not as far as I would go on these issues, but I think the Biden administration is at least taking um, an approach to Russia that might allow us to stabilize the relationship somewhat and then might allow us to get to that point where we could talk about lifting sanctions. What are we getting in exchange for lifting those sanctions? You know, what is that that trade off? Um, you know, I think the the 
the old strategy didn't even let us get to that point. So that's why I'm saying I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that we are not necessarily going to reset US-Russian relations, but at least we're going to stabilize things so they don't get any worse. Um, and that's a big win. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And uh, the Biden's decision on Nord Stream 2 was uh, interesting to me. It was a little surprising because earlier in the year, they had been talking as though they were going to uh, pile on sanctions on that as well. Uh, and and they didn't care what the Germans thought and they were going to go full suite ahead. And then I, I guess, I don't know, reality set in or they, they thought about it a little bit more. And they realized that picking a fight with Germany over a, a losing battle didn't make sense. Um and so, so what, what, what's your take on uh, his non-action on Nord Stream 2? And what do you make of the agreement that the U.S. and Germany came up with uh, as, at the end of that? Yeah, so I, I may be wrong here, but I actually interpreted what the administration did as an attempt to bluff right up to the end. Um, okay. And the main reason that I say that is because um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, for all that he has been fairly hard laying on some of these questions about Russia, he also wrote his dissertation on a right. similar episode in history related to a Soviet pipeline and on the fact that sanctions and other sort of inducements didn't work in that case. So I, you know, it, it, people do often ignore the past work that they've done when they get into policy. But I, I feel like in this case, I, I don't think that he suddenly had a change of heart. So, so my impression here was that they bluffed to try and make the Germans offer concessions. Um, and then when it was obvious that wasn't happening, they came to this deal. Um, so th there's many people in Washington that aren't very happy about the deal. The deal basically allows Nord Stream 2 to go ahead um, in exchange for some German assurances that they will um, react strongly if Russia tries to use its energy as a weapon um, and then offer the Ukrainians some support in sort of retooling away from energy transit in their economy. Um, so there's no actual promises in there. So it's a fairly weak agreement. I still think it's about the best they could probably have got. Um, and the reason that I, you know, aside from sort of grand strategic questions. My, my own background is in energy politics. And the reason that I'm not worried about this is because since 2006, which was the, the year that the Russians shut off all the gas to Ukraine and caused that big fiasco, um, since that time, the European Union has done so much to actually make itself more energy secure um, to the point where a lot of experts in the field now think that Russia couldn't do the same thing again. It just wouldn't work. Um, and so, you know, then the concerns about things like Ukrainian transit fees, I think mean, those are much smaller um, and there's ways for Europe to mitigate that. So I, I actually think, again, the Biden team did a pretty good job of threading the needle here um, and, and finding an agreement that, um, you know, that actually works for everybody, um, except for apart from a few people in Congress. Sure. Well, and, yeah, and one of those people, uh, as, as we all know, is Ted Cruz, who's on a on a jihad of sorts. Uh, trying to block every uh, State Department nominee uh, that he can possibly uh, block. Uh, he, he's put a, a blanket block, in fact, on all uh, senior nominations, uh, which I believe has never been done before by uh, any one senator. Uh, and to, to what extent is this just uh, reflexive anti-Russia posturing, and, and, and how much of it is uh, driven by uh, U.S. Uh, energy interests? I don't think it's being driven by U.S. energy interests, um, in part because there's no real um, there's no real motive for doing so. Um, as as things stand, the Europeans just aren't that interested in importing American uh, LNG liquefied natural gas. It's just very expensive 
compared to Russian gas. Um, You know, I I think that this is foreign policy based for Cruz. Um, And I think he is hoping that if he, you know, holds up all these nominations to the State Department, maybe the Biden team will cave on on this question of of sanctioning other countries. Um, Where I find this just a really interesting little episode is, um, you know, there's been some talk in recent years about foreign policy getting more partisan. Um, and, and I think that's actually true. The, you know, this we had this long-running bipartisan consensus on foreign policy that had elements of both sort of liberal internationalism and U.S. primacy all wrapped up in it. Um, and I think what we're seeing actually is that those two things are diverging slightly, and that the Democrats are moving slightly more towards uh, a liberal internationalism that's not as focused on American primacy. And so by that I mean things like not sanctioning Germany, not sanctioning an ally to try and make it so the U.S. absolutely gets what it wants. Um, So slightly more flexibility in accepting the other countries of agency, while the Republican Party, I think, is moving much more in the direction of this, um, you know, U.S. unilateral primacy, we get what we want, we use sanctions and military force to get it. Um, And so I feel like this episode and and a bunch of others in recent years are are very indicative of this growing split in, in foreign policy. Thank you, Emma. And, you know, before we go, I, I, I have to ask you, it's been six months uh, into the Biden administration. And I know uh, we have talked before, before, during the Trump administration, as well as during the election, about the prospects of a new foreign policy and this burgeoning realism and restraint community sort of having an influence on foreign policy going forward. Do you get a sense from looking at your your peers, uh, whether it be in uh, the discourse on social media or reports and articles coming out and just in general, the discussion, do you get a sense that there is some progress on that front, that there is a real turning point in how we uh, as um, as Americans are looking at foreign policy and the U.S. role in the world? I actually do. Um, maybe I'm just overly optimistic here. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like particularly the Trump years, um, sort of, you know, where some of America's structural weaknesses have become apparent with, with COVID and, you know, the failure of the war in Canada, I think a lot of those ingredients have gone together um, to a point where Washington, you know, used to debate basically how to do foreign policy, right? It was very tactical. Um, and lots of people have written on this question. Um, And there are, I think, more debates now about what Washington should do. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that I think that people, particularly um, in the administration, in the public party, I don't think this means they're becoming like wholehearted restrainers. Um, But I do think it means that they are starting to pick up parts of that agenda. Um, And, you know, I, I have an article coming out soon on this. So, I'm probably just going to repeat myself here, but, you know, the thing that I find really interesting is I think the parties are picking up different parts of that consensus, um, which is not necessarily good. So I think that the, you know, the democratic liberal internationalists um, have, have sort of accepted to some extent the idea that the war on terror was a failure, that nation building doesn't work, that democracy promotion is is bad. And we actually saw this in that didn't Dudney and Eikenberry piece, where they basically argued sort of that that was the other folks, that was the primacists, that wasn't the liberal internationalists. Um, and so I think there's there's kind of an attempt to, um, to just step away from that. And then on the Republican side, I think there's, you know, again, an attempt to step away from sort of nation building um, and the ideology aspect of that liberal internationalism um, and to step away to some extent from sort of multilateral diplomacy. Um, and so I think 
there is a lot of change in foreign policy in Washington. Um, and I think restraint has made inroads, but it's not it's not been adopted wholesale. Um, and I, I don't think I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, unfortunately, I think you're probably right about that. Uh, but we, we can keep working on it and keep uh, trying to, to get that message out there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Emma. Uh, we're, we're out of time now, but uh, we really appreciated having you on. And uh, we look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.